1: For more information, visit InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more.
2: This is Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio, broadcasting live from Alberta's, and I'm your host, Talia Ralph. Low fat, non fat, and heart healthy, we've heard them all, and for a good part of this century, millions of Americans have dutifully avoided the dreaded F word, fat, in an effort to get slim and steer clear of cardiovascular disease, which is the leading killer in the United States. But there have been some rumblings from the other side. There was Dr. Robert Atkins, who famously advocated for bacon and egg breakfasts. And these days we've got Paleo Diet Disciples and the gluten-free craze. Um, and today on the show, we've got the latest crusader for butter, meat, and full-fat cheese on air with us. Her name is Nina Tysholz. She's an investigative reporter who has written for Gourmet, The New Yorker, The Economist, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. She spent the last decade poring over nutritional studies and interviewing hundreds of nutritionists public health officials to get to the bottom of how fat got such a bad rap and her book the big fat surprise why butter meat and cheese belong in a healthy diet is on sale across the country tomorrow but we're lucky enough to have nina on the show with us today to give us a taste of her reporting and findings thanks so much for being with us nina thank you for having me i'm delighted to be on the show Awesome. We're delighted to have you. So the idea from the book, um, it actually came from your time as a restaurant critic here in New York, right, in the early 2000s. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about that experience and how the light bulb went off to turn from food criticism to this nutritional investigation that you embarked on.
3: Well, I had a little column writing a restaurant review. Uh, It was really just sort of a side thing. Then I was also writing for Gourmet Magazine about doing investigative food stories. But this little column, they they sent me to restaurants, and they didn't have a budget to pay for my meals. so I basically had to eat whatever the chef sent out to me. And chefs, I discovered, are not interested in sending out, stir-fry vegetables and chicken, which is what I had been eating for most of my adult life, and fish, they are interested in sending out the more complex and interesting foods like red meat and pate and cream sauces and foie gras, all these things that I had either never eaten or not eaten in decades. And they were delicious, I discovered. Um, And I also found that I was losing weight and my cholesterol levels were fine. And that was a huge mystery, which then set me off on this huge, near decade-long uh, journey to try to figure out what was going on, why that was so. For sure. So
2: you wrote about trans fats for gourmet in 2003, right? And that piece got um, a lot of attention. And so can you tell us a little bit about what you learned about trans fats while reporting and sort
3: of what the reaction to the piece was? That, well, that was my entree into thinking about fats, which is that I had was assigned a piece on trans fats before anybody really knew what they were about. I wrote this piece um, for Gourmet Magazine. It got a huge amount of attention. It led to a book contract. But once I started researching fats, I realized, oh, there's just a much bigger story here about fats in general. And you know, that fat is the ingredient, as you said in your intro, that Americans have obsessed about most. It's the nutrient that has been targeted the most. And I realized there was that that all of our nutrition recommendations over the past nearly sixty years seem to have been wrong, and and so that was this huge um, kind of revelation and set me off down this path.
2: So, do you think you're going to have a similar reaction to this book? I mean, it's pretty radical for a lot of people who, you know, like you said, have believed the opposite for most of their lives or devoted themselves to the Mediterranean diet or other. Low fat diets. So, um, have you gotten any feedback so far? And sort of what are you expecting as the book hits stance?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's no question that what I'm saying is controversial. Um, and, you know, the reaction is just starting to come in because it isn't even, it isn't even out yet. But um, I think it's important to note that the, the dogma about saturated fat and fat has been crumbling. And it's not, I'm the one who has done a ton of research and talked to a lot of people, and I've documented it, but but what is happening out there in the nutrition community in general is that there are a number of scientists who have started to question these fundamental beliefs about nutrition, and there has been a body of research now over the last decade where the, the clinical trials have been done which really show... Um, definitively, that a high-fat diet is is healthier. It's healthier for heart disease, obesity, and diabetes. And so, there's a there's a group of scientists out there who are developing these ideas and testing them. And and most Americans have just never heard of them because they're not. They're not because of their beliefs. They're not mainstream nutrition scientists and their names. They're not on the expert panels deciding what we what to recommend American that Americans should eat. But um, there's a community out there that is starting to topple this dietary dogma.
2: Right, and I definitely want to get to sort of the politics of that um, in a little bit. But um, for those of us who don't know, uh, can you sort of highlight why um, you've found saturated fat is, is good for us according to the research and why maybe these low-fat, high-carb diets that a lot of people have been following are not and sort of how we've been led to to believe the opposite.
3: <laughs> That's a big <laughs> That's three-part the book, question, right? <laughs> but let me start with the beginning one, which is how did we come to believe that saturated fat is bad for us to begin with? And that goes back to the 1950s when the nation was terrified about this sudden there was the epidemic of heart disease that had kind of appeared out of nowhere in the nineteen twenties and had risen to become the nation's number one killer. And there was a need for answers. And there was one scientist, Ansel Keys, who was an outsized personality, extremely charismatic. He got the idea that saturated fats were what was bad for health. And he was able to insert his idea into the American Heart Association and the first anti-saturated fat guidelines for the nation Came out in 1961. Once they were institutionalized, I mean, this is, I'm trying to reduce it as much as possible. Basically, like institutional science is like an oxymoron because. Science requires that you be self-doubting and nimble and that you constantly question yourself. Institutions require constancy, consistency, and not letting your public feel like you're all constantly changing your views about everything. So once the American Heart Association adopted this one idea about what caused heart disease, it became almost impossible to change. The National Institute of Health, also run by a very small group of people who were kind of an interlocking group of nutrition aristocrats who also were the head of the American Heart Association, they controlled all the research dollars, they appoint who's on the expert panels, and that creates its own momentum carrying the idea forward. And anybody who dissented, there were plenty of critics along the way, and there was there was plenty of bad science that didn't support this hypothesis along the way. But those voices, I mean, scientists quickly learned that if they were critics, they weren't going to get any money to do research and nobody was going to invite them to conferences or on any expert panels, and that was basically professional suicide. So we wound up with this hypothesis becoming fact um, before it was ever really tested. Um, why the, the diet that then did become adopted, which was a high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet. That became, that has been, the American Heart Association since 1961 has endorsed that diet, and the USDA, the, our government adopted it in 1980. And we have all been following that diet. Um, Americans eat 17% more fruits and vegetables than they did in the early 70s. We eat 11% less saturated fat. We have cut back on red meat and um, dairy over the last 30 years, and we've increased our grains, pasta, high carbohydrates, basically. And the problem with carbohydrates is it doesn't really matter what kind of carbohydrate, although it seems that sugar is probably worse. It breaks down into glucose. Glucose, when it enters your bloodstream, triggers... The release of insulin, which is a hormone in your bloodstream, insulin is like the king of all hormones in making you fat. It's it locks down your fat your fat stores so that you can't access access them for energy, and it ramps up the degree to which you store the energy that that is come that you're eating basically, and, and and socks it away as fat. So, over the last. 50 years of following this diet, Americans have gotten fat. And that's also related insulin. If you have too much of it constantly, chronically circulating around your bloodstream, you also get diabetes. And we've also seen that happen in America. Right. I think I answered two out of your three questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great,
2: uh, a great start. And I think um, what's one of the things that's interesting about your book is, while you do point to processed food and big food companies as being a part of this, um, there's also sort of a a web of more, you know, complicated sort of blocking of this science that is relevant and um, sort of political shape-shifting. And I'm wondering if you could just sort of um, outline that a little bit as the sort of, I don't know if there's one culprit that you would point to or, you know, obviously it's not that simple, but how do you sort of outline um, the way this progressed from a
3: political perspective? So that's a great question, because now we're in a situation where the nation's health has gotten so much worse, and nutrition experts are now increasingly pointing the finger at Big Food and saying they're the ones who've made us fat, when in fact, I mean, Big Food is no angel. There are plenty of things they do to try to steer the science and and influence scientists and influence research, but... They are highly sensitive to what the USDA dietary guidelines are, and they follow those. And they have ma- they've been making food that complies with the dietary gar- guidelines, high carbohydrate foods, and even high sugar foods. I mean, the American Heart Association was recommending to the American people until quite recently that we eat high sugar foods, including bottled sodas and gumdrops, in order to avoid fatty foods. So. There's a kind of an effort now to shift the blame over to the to big food. But I think that this story is really a failure of science. Good intentioned men, scientists, who really wanted to solve the heart disease epidemic, really believed that this was the best possible solution and just jumped the gun on the science, used incomplete weak science and then um, and pushed that through before it was ready, before it was tested. And it's a failure of science, and, and that failure, that kind of failure continues today in science. Um, so it's obviously not a simple story, but I, I think that the nutrition scientists really play the biggest role in this.
2: Right, and do you think, too, that perhaps um, it seems from um, a lot of your book that it's a really bad case of groupthink, and I'm wondering if you think the fact that we do have a pretty homogenous body of, of who are scientists in this country. I mean, even you just said, you know, men. We have mostly male scientists, um, mostly white scientists. Do you think sort of a diversity in the scientific community would have stopped this? And, you know, what else does the community need in order to to have more open-minded and,
3: and challenged research? Well, it's definitely true that in the 1950s, heart disease was a disease of middle-aged white male men, and the people who responded to it were white male middle-aged senators, and then there were white male middle-aged scientists who undertook that work. I think um, it's very clear that the lack of women around the table meant women were not tested at all, were not included in any of the early studies. There was no data on women at all, and then when it did come out, it was ignored because it showed that women, which this had been known for a long... since the mid-part of the 20th century, women, because of their hormones, they, they contract heart disease much differently than men do. Um, and But women really were not included in any of the early trials or the data, or there was no data on women when... The U.S. government decided to back the cholesterol lowering diet. Um, women with high cholesterol have actually been shown to live longer than women with lower cholesterol. And the other group that really hasn't been around the table are children. Children also, all children over the age of two have been prescribed the low fat diet based on zero clinical trials when that recommendation was issued by the U.S. government in the, in 1986. And they, turns out children thrive better, have better nutrition, grow better on a higher fat diet. But they haven't, they're, they haven't been at the table. Um, you know, as for other kinds of diversity like racial diversity, I, I think that you know, the, the basic problem has been that there's a small group of nutrition aristocrats, a small group of people who really control all the expert panels and who are in charge of the studies, in charge of the funding, implement the studies, review the studies. They are the editors of the journals. There's a small group of people who, uh, who control the, uh, the nutrition agenda in the country. And that is, um, it's really about a diversity of opinion rather than a diversity of different um, races at the table
2: definitely and we have a lot more to talk about we're just going to take a quick break um for those of you just tuning in we're talking with nina ty schultz about her new book the big fat surprise here on eat your words and we will be back on the other side All right. Welcome back to Eat Your Words. I'm your host, Talia Ralph. We have Nina Tyholtz with us today talking about why butter, meat, and full-fat cheese belong in our diets, which sounds good to a lot of us, I know. Um, yeah. She outlines this argument in her new book, The Big Fat Surprise, which is out tomorrow. Um, Tonina, so you've been at this research for a long time, <laughs> 10 right. years, and I was wondering over the course of it, what was, you know, one of the most shocking things or one of the most, you know, deeply obscured things um that jumped out of you, out at you um over the course of doing this research. You know, you've you're immersed in the field and wondering what um you found that made even you do a double take.
3: Well, there are so many revelations when you go back through the science and you realize how bad it has been. I've been back through all the science going back to the 1940s and read all these nutrition studies. And it, there's, there are just endless revelations about <laughs> how bad it was and how it was misinterpreted and how its flaws were slept, swept under the rug. I mean, just to give you one example of one thing I found, there's a chapter in my book on the Mediterranean diet. And I went through and read really all the literature on the Mediterranean diet and olive oil and one thing I found was that olive oil despite the incredible hype has not been it, it, scientific, scientific studies have not demonstrated that, that olive oil has any special heart disease fighting powers um, although a lot of money has been thrown at that hypothesis trying to show that it's true it just has not been demonstrated and that was a complete surprise to me Uh, as was the little nugget that I found, which is that um, olive oil isn't even ancient. When I was trying to fact-check this quote by Homer that I had seen all over the olive oil literature, where Homer had apparently called it liquid gold, and I went back and looked through every Homerian text, and it's not there. What he did say uh, was that there was liquid olive oil in a flask of gold, because olive oil was used not for culinary purposes but to anoint the body for just to be beautiful and also it before athletic performances and co- uh, athletic competitions and that olive oil actually wasn't used as a foodstuff until about hundred and fifty years ago in Spain and Italy and Greece which really was shocking.
2: Right, and I mean do you think there's something to be said for our food culture here in America or you know some people would argue the lack thereof um, being more of a culprit here, or you know, reason why we are so dependent on nutrition science or
3: marketing um, or stories. You know, that's also a really good question, and I ask myself a lot, like, why is it our Americans so were were we so susceptible to this kind of science? And I, I think that it goes back to the in the mid century, mid twentieth century, that Americans they really believed in. Science and progress, and they, um, and also they're detached because we're a nation of immigrants. We're detached from our own food traditions. We don't have many of us do not have our grandmothers or great-grandmothers sitting around saying, "What? Why are you eating that?" You know, or or, you know, that countries that where people aren't largely immigrant populations, they're surrounded by their food cultures and they're transmitted and passed on through the generations. Well, we're we've sort of rubbed the slate clean, which meant that. American housewives were much more susceptible to getting their food ideas through nutrition scientists and and food magazines. Who, um, I mean, all those women's magazines from the 1920s on, really, they just were stocked with all this how to how to be the modern American housewife that involved using Crisco and not butter. Um, And it's fascinating to go back and look at those ads to show, like, why don't you give up the ways of your grandmother's spinning wheel and give up lard and butter to use Crisco? But of course, you know, lard and butter is what Americans had been using and what Europeans used all throughout history. Crisco was invented in 1911.
2: And what role do you think Um, portion control plays into this, because I've always felt, you know, like the whole French women don't get fat and those movements looking at other cultures that do have this really, you know, appreciation for um, full fat or or things that we perceive as really bad for us. But the key is the way in which they eat them and the, the portions that they eat them. Do you sort of examine that at all in the book? Where do you come down on that?
3: My book is not a diet book. It's really a book of science and history, and I don't go into a lot of how-tos. I mean, my own, in my own personal ex- experience, well, what, what science shows is that if you're eating a high-fat diet and keeping your carbohydrates low, you cannot overeat on meat. You cannot overeat on um, cheese as well. I mean, the scientific the overfeeding studies they did in the 1980s were just fascinating. They put a stack of pork chops on the table in front of people and people simply could not eat too much of them or too many of them. Whereas it's very easy, according to the studies that I have seen on this, it's very easy to overeat on carbohydrates. Why is that? Well, they're complex reasons for hunger. It's not just about willpower. It's about what your body craves and needs. So if you satisfy the need for protein and fat, then your body sends a message to your brain saying, I'm not hungry anymore. I, I don't need to eat anymore. And, um, and that's why we think of those foods as being more satiating, which they are. Um, so it's complicated, this whole subject. But in my personal experience and the experience of doctors who have, there's a whole tradition of doctors putting people on low-carbohydrate diets that go back to the late 1800s in England, and there was absolutely no need to limit people's portion controls or their calories. They would, they, would, they just, it naturally, there was a natural kind of limit. That's been my experience, too. I just, I don't think about what I'm eating or I don't worry about it. I don't, I just don't have any of that stress about food and limiting my food that I had when I was a vegetarian, when I worried about it all the time. Mm
2: -hmm. And I mean, speaking of the stack of pork chops and sort of the vegetarian lifestyle, um, you do make a note at the end of the book, um, sort of um, stepping away from maybe these ethical or environmental um, implications of eating more meat. And I'm just wondering that um, how you sort of account for... um, people who for a variety of reasons, may they be personal, environmental, ethical, um, choose to be vegetarian or vegan, you know, what do you say to them and and sort of is it difficult to write a book like this and and not get into that debate?
3: Right. Well, so the first thing I would say is it's perfectly, you you, you can be healthy on cheese and um, you know, dairy and eggs and not eat meat if that's what you prefer. It's very hard, what they found in, in experiments on um, animals, it's very hard for people to, for animals to, I mean, to, to reproduce and to grow well on pure vegetarian diets without any animal foods. It's just harder. It's not impossible, but it's hard. And, so, um, but I think it's, I, I don't, you know, you don't have to eat meat. Um, as to the question, I mean, there are huge ethical concerns, environmental concerns. I think those are all really big, serious questions. And the only answer I have to that is we just have to figure out what's healthy first. I mean, it took me however many, you know, almost a decade to figure out, well, what is healthy? And then we're still even the nutritionists. And scientists are still debating that question. We're still vociferously debating that question. So let's settle that question first. And then let's see, well, then how can we implement that in a sustainable way? Um, But we first have to figure out what makes people healthy.
2: Definitely. I just do think that that's a a complicated question that takes into account more than just what's in front of us, but how we're, we're producing it. And definitely there's a lot of literature on that as well, um, but in terms of The Big Fat Surprise, it, it isn't a diet book, you don't include recipes, but I'm wondering if you could sort of walk us through a typical day of eating um, for you and sort of taking this reporting into account how you're, um, how you're eating and how other people who would want to eat more this way would go about it.
3: So in my day, I start with bacon or eggs, sausage. I have... Uh, I sort of snack through the day. I don't really sit down for lunch. Usually I have cheese, salami, nuts, um, all really good foods that fill me up. And then for dinner we have um, we have vegetables, like non-starchy vegetables, like um, cauliflower, greens. We also have in my family, um, you know, we'll either have fish or chicken or meat for dinner. Um And what we don't have in my house are a lot of, we don't have a lot of bread, we don't have a lot of pasta, we don't have a lot of uh, rice. I mean, so what I've just described is a high-fat diet that's fairly high in protein, but what it really is is a high-fat diet. And I think that's a healthier diet than starting off with oatmeal, low-fat yogurt, berries, fruit, orange juice, all carbohydrates, a little bit of protein in the low-fat yogurt, although low-fat products are always higher in carbohydrates. And then having salad and a chicken breast for lunch, which probably leaves you starving. Maybe you have low-fat salad dressing on that, which is really high in sugar because they've taken out the fat and those low-fat products are higher in um, sugar. And then having chicken for dinner. I mean, one of the, the problems with the... The diet today of Americans is they're kind of stuck with chicken and fish. Like that's what they get to eat for all their entrees. And and what I'm saying is you can eat other things. You can have a greater diversity of your diet and um, and not have to worry, not feel guilty about it.
2: Right. And so does part of that include maybe opening up our minds to eating different animals? You know, I was just doing a lot of um, reading and reporting on goat meat and what a healthy and great alternative that is or you know eating parts of animals that we maybe traditionally haven't in the past been so keen and when I say we I mean sort of the average American eater Um, does that play into it at all sort of expanding our understanding of protein and how we get it?
3: Well you know it's so interesting if you go back and look at cookbooks from the 16th century in Europe I mean the diversity of foods the diversity of different kinds of Fowl and animals I mean it's so much more diverse than our diet is today, and also if you read ex- accounts by explorers, missionaries, um, medical doctors overseas, what they find in I don't want to say primitive but you know early civilizations of people that ha- aren't eating imported food is that they actually prefer the viscera of the animal over the muscle meat. Um, they, those, the viscera, the, the liver and the organ meat is higher, much higher in nutrients, also higher in fat. And the muscle meat, like in the case of the Inuit in the Arctic, the tenderloin, they used to feed that to their dogs, <laughs> which is hilarious because we think that's the, you know, the most valued part of the animal. Um, but you know, we're, we're really upside down today from, from where humans were hundreds of years ago.
2: Right. And so um, we're almost out of time, but just to wrap up, um, what's the one thing you hope people sort of take away from the book? Or um, is there sort of a Michael Pollan-esque seven word, you know, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. I was at a a conference this weekend and they sort of did that with uh, eating fish and seafood in America. And so I'm wondering if, you know, you have sort of a a couple sentences uh, that people are, are walking away from the book with in your
3: ideal world. So I'll just use the the Michael Pollan haiku line. Eat fat a lot. Don't worry if it's saturated.
2: (laughs) Great. Um, Well, Nina, thank you so much for your time. We've been talking to Nina Taishold. She is the author of The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet. Um, And it'll be on sale tomorrow, right? Right. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time.
3: All right. bye -bye.
2: Bye-bye.